Well, welcome to fall. I like fall. This is, I think like many people, this is my favorite season of the year um, for many reasons. But as we get into fall, we are resuming uh, a new series. So it's a series that we, t- we were in previously this year, then we took a pause and did a couple topical series, and now we're resuming as we move into fall and winter. And we're going to be uh, in the second half of the Gospel of Mark. So if you think about the Gospels, you know, our, our, our Bibles have a lot of books. There's 66 books in the Bible. And four of them, four of those 66 are the Gospels. Those tell the good news about Jesus, which means that effectively they are they're selective biographies about the life of Jesus. Selective in the sense that they're not, they're not comprehensive. They don't tell every detail of Jesus' life. They're not trying to. Each author was writing for a specific group of people. And either he was trying to persuade them to put their faith in Jesus, to come to, to belief in Jesus if they were spiritually unconvinced about who Jesus is in, in their lives. So in some cases, like, like the book of John, John is a gospel written to bring people to a place of faith. Mark was written actually to a different audience. It was actually to people who were primarily Christians, but it was to disciple them in what it means to actually follow Jesus. To, to the, the, when they, when they signed up to follow Jesus, it may not, um, they may not have come in with the expectations that are actually what's going to materialize. And so it's, it's an encouragement to keep following Jesus. And I, I think of all, you know, we love the Bible. Typically our model here is we teach through scripture. We start with a, a, a book and we teach all the way through that because we want, to, we want to allow God's word to speak for itself. So without trying to set the agenda, we, we try to let God's word speak um, for, to us. Um, and I think we ought to spend an, an inordinate amount of time. Out of those 66 books, they're all valuable. We believe Scripture is God-breathed, that all of it is, is beneficial uh, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We, we believe that all of it's God-breathed, and the Gospels are the most important. Because the Gospels tell us about Jesus. Jesus is the one that, that made the invisible God visible. We talk about that around here, that as his followers, we're supposed to do the same. But all we're doing is walking in Jesus' footsteps to the best degree that we can. Jesus is the one that actually made the invisible God visible. John tells us that, that uh, no one has ever seen the invisible God. No one has ever seen the creator. But the son, who is close to his side, who does know him, has come and has made him known, has shown us what God the Father, God our creator, is like. And so that's why the Gospels are so important. So I just want to say I'm excited to be back in the Gospels. Uh, I, I loved our last series. I felt like that was a very uh, timely and appropriate series as we looked at the one and others of Scripture. And I'm really glad to be back in the book of Mark. So this final series in Mark is going to be, it's all going to come into the banner of follow me. So for example, this week, it's follow me, meaning not me, Jesus. The me, the me there is Jesus. So follow me. And this week, it's into power-filled prayer. Alternatively, I also call this message, Follow Me Into Compassionate Intimacy. So you can choose your own title. Kind of like choose your own adventure, just very different. Um, but, but either follow, follow me into power-filled prayer or follow me into compassionate intimacy. This invitation, it's a strong invitation. It's actually a command. It's an instruction of Jesus to those who would be his followers to follow me. This is at the very core of our life together as disciples and apprentices of Jesus. We're going to be in chapter 9 today is where we're going to pick up, if you want to turn there. Um, but first, we're going to recap where we are in Mark's gospel because we, there's a context that we're picking up in. So uh, first of all, Mark's gospel is told in two halves. Okay, we basically, we already did the first half. Uh, the first half was all about Jesus' identity. And the reality is it was Jesus as a veiled Messiah. He was a hidden Messiah, you might say. And so that was uh, Mark 1, 1 through 8.30. Part 1 has this, this driving theme, this repeated theme, where people are basically asking, who is this man Jesus? Everyone who encounters him asks some variation of that question. Some of them stand in amazement. They're so excited about what they've discovered in him. Some of them stand in wonder. Some of them actually stand in fear. But all of them are wondering, who, who then is this? They have people, people are asking things like, who's this man who teaches with a new authority? Even demonic spirits obey him? 
People ask things like, who is this who performs miraculous signs that we've never seen before? We've never seen anything like this. Who is this? People say things like, in fact, this was his disciples. They said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The creation itself responds to his word. Who is this? In chapter 6, we see that everyone, there's this kind of summary statement in chapter 6 that, that everyone is asking, who is this man? And so some people are saying that he's uh, Moses reincarnated. Some of them are saying that he's one of the prophets of old that has come back and revisited them. And then Herod, King Herod, ruler of the Jews, he says, I think he's John the baptizer who I beheaded, and he's come back to haunt me. It was October. He was... So that's what's going on. Everybody's asking, who is this man, Jesus? And for Jesus' part in the first half of the book, he's not answering. He's actually, he's actually keeping secret. He's actually not telling them who he is. In fact, sometimes when he does something that, that very clearly points to who he is, he tells people to be quiet about it. So for example, in, in chapter uh, five, he brought a 12-year-old girl back to life. She, she had died. Her father, before she died, came to see Jesus and said, could you come heal my daughter? And while he was en route, the little girl died, and they began planning the funeral for her. Mourners were gathering to actually, you know, have what they would have as their equivalent of a funeral in first century Jewish culture. They're planning that. Jesus shows up. He goes in privately to her bedroom. He simply speaks life into her and says, little girl, arise, gives her back to her parents, and then says, um, don't tell anybody. Which, that's kind of a hard one to keep secret, right? Because the funeral just became a birthday party for new life. So that's going to be a little bit hard to tell, but, but that's the pattern, is Jesus does something that clearly is a sign to say, this is, this is God walking in our midst. And then he tells people, be quiet. The question is Why? Why would he hide his identity? Why this veiled Messiah? And the reality is it's because although he is, he is the long-awaited Messiah, he is, um, he's not going to be the Messiah in the way they expect. See, they have, this is a first century Jewish culture, and they have years, centuries of promises that, that one day God himself would come and would set things right, that it won't always be like this. <laughs> this is tragic. Not only did we drop Mitchell's iPad, extinguish the Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness. All right. I'm not moving on until these candles are lit because I don't have anything to give in and of myself. All right. Where were we? Let me get a drink. Meanwhile, the, the message on the iPad says, what went wrong? <laughs> I, thank you. You're mocking me. Why is Jesus veiled in the first half? Because although he is the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah, he's not going to be the Messiah they're expecting. So the first half builds to a climax. All the while, people are asking these questions. Chapter 8 comes to a climax. Jesus asks the disciples, what have you concluded? Okay, they've been with him this whole time. They've witnessed, they've experienced, they've participated. And he comes to this climactic moment when he says, okay, who do you say that I am? Let's read it. We already saw this, but this is back in 827, right before the, the turn of the book. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, and this is the summary statement that we've already seen previously in Mark. They said, well, some say uh, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. When he says, we, we saw this, when, when Peter says you are the Christ, that's, that's, a, a, that's an epiphany. Again, Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's not Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It means the anointed one. It means the Messiah. 
It means the one that we've been waiting for. And it's the secret hope that's been churning in all of their hearts. But finally, Peter blurts it out and says, it's, you are the one, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, that's, that's the climax of the book. That's the watershed moment because everything after that, the readers and Jesus' disciples know who he is. He's no longer a veiled Messiah. He's now a revealed Messiah. Okay, so, but, it, but it's not to everyone. It's to his immediate disciples. And then, of course, as Mark is writing to his audience, we're now in on the secret. We now know who this man is. Brings us to part two. Part two is Jesus' mission. So it's Jesus' identity is the first half. Jesus' mission is the second half. Jesus as veiled Messiah is the first half. Jesus as revealed Messiah is the second half. In part two, Jesus shifts his attention and his focus from the crowds to his 12 disciples. We're going to see this even in the final verse of this week's passage. He's no longer so much ministering to the whole crowds. In fact, he's trying to keep a low profile, even in the place where he did most of his ministry previously. He's now trying to keep a low profile because he's really focused on those 12. We're going to find out why today. He begins preparing his disciples for the nature of his mission and for what it means for them as his apprentices. We've used that language. and Disciple is kind of a word that we don't really use a lot in, generally speaking, in 21st century American culture. But we use the word apprentices. That's, that's what it means to be a disciple. It means to learn from somebody how to do what they do with the intention that you would actually follow them, that, we're, that they're equipping you to do what they do, that, that we're, we're being equipped as disciples or as apprentices to live our lives as Jesus would if he were us. So for them, for the 12, they are not ready for him to be a suffering servant. They're not ready for him to be a suffering servant and, and they're not prepared to follow him in self-sacrificing love. They're not prepared to take up their cross and follow him. Up until now, in this book, in, in the story of Mark with the disciples, up until chapter 8, the end of 8, it's been pretty easy to follow Jesus, to be counted as one of his disciples. I mean, think about it. Jesus has been popular with the crowds wherever they go. He, he is the man. He's the buzz. Everybody's talking about him. To, to be counted as one of his followers is kind of a, you know, a little bit of prestige there. Jesus has been popular with the crowds. They've witnessed almost every one of his miracles, and they've even got to participate in some of them, like they actually happened in their hands. There have been pockets of resistance to Jesus, but it's been primarily a, a, a religious minority that's, that's, that's been opposed to him, and their oppression has been largely like verbal. It's been criticism and verbal, but it hasn't become physical yet. But as of this chapter, the heat's about to be turned up. The heat's going to be turned up on Jesus. And alternatively, it's going to be turned up on them as well. So what's he preparing them for? The two key aspects of his preparation, he's, one is that he's weaning them off of his physical presence. Jesus knows that he's not going to be with them physically much longer. Now, he's not going to leave them as orphans. He, he actually has promised them that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell them. So they're not going to be left as orphans, but it's going to look and feel very different than it's been. Up until now, they've literally had Jesus walking with them. If they want to know, uh, if they have a question, they can just ask him. Like, he's right there. And he's going to be taken away, and that's going to leave them feeling very disoriented. So he's preparing them for that moment. He's also preparing them to continue his mission but it's his mission as he's defined it, not as they would define it. And that's one of the reasons he's kept it secret even from them, because the way they would define the mission is not the way he's going to do it. Even, even after Peter's confession, we saw this, that Peter confessed, you are the Christ, and he said, yes, don't tell anyone. And then he said, here's what's about to happen. When we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to, to, to men who will crucify me. And, and, and Peter rebuked him for that, because that's not Peter's vision of what the Messiah should be. And that's not Peter's vision for their life as well. Peter's thinking, man, we're going to get to be vice presidents and secretary of state. And Peter wants to be like defense secretary. You know. So what happens? As we resume, so this brings us to our last context. As we resume, Jesus is returning with Peter, James, and John following his transfiguration. Now here's something unique that's happened. There's a couple of times in the gospels where Jesus separates the 12 
and he takes three with him to, to a special place. So when we talked about the, the little girl who was uh, raised from the dead, not all the disciples saw that. Peter, James, and John saw that. They were like the inner three. Uh, in this case, Jesus had taken the inner three on a hike up a mountain, and he left the nine behind. Okay, taken the, the, the three. Um, there on the mountaintop, those three witnessed Jesus unveiled. They, th- this is the, you know, the pivotal moment of the book. They actually saw Jesus unveiled because they got to see him as an eternal state. There's this moment where, where the veiled Messiah, Jesus, was no longer just a, uh, a Galilean mortal man, but the very glory of God began to radiate out of him on the mountain. And they saw eternal Jesus, glorified Jesus. They got to see Jesus, who he would be at the second coming. Just a little foretaste of how they would experience Jesus in eternity. And it's amazing. I mean, it, uh, as uh, Tim Keller points out, it's very different. That it, it, it's supposed to make us think of, of when Moses went up the mountain, and Moses went up the mountain and, and had an encounter with God's presence. He, he couldn't actually see God's glory because no man can see God's glory and live. But he got to, to experience God's glory from a distance. And he came down from the mountain radiating God's, or not radiating, but reflecting God's glory. He was glowing, glowing Moses, okay? Good name for a band. Tree fort. Um, but he was, he was reflecting God's glory in the same way that the moon reflects the sun. He didn't have his own glory. He was just reflecting it. Jesus was reflecting glory the way the sun shines. It was emanating from within him. Mark says that it, it made his clothes so white that, that no, nobody on earth could, could make clothes that white. Purdue University, I just heard this last night, Purdue University, some, some researchers there, they just have, have created uh, the whitest paint known to mankind. The whitest white. It is so white that you can paint a building with this and it will reflect more heat than it will absorb. And so they're excited about it because it actually has the potential to, to um, reduce our, our need for air conditioning. It's fascinating. Jesus was radiating white whiter than that because it was eternal glory coming from within him. So, so this is the manifestation of who he is. You can imagine for Peter, James, and John, this is like a benchmark moment. They don't know what to do with it, but they're like, holy cow. And they're speechless. Peter says something stupid because he doesn't know what to say. But that's where they've been. They got a glimpse Interesting, both the first half of Mark and the second half of Mark, they begin with the Father, God the Father, making a statement over Jesus, affirming his love for Jesus. In part one, there was a voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism that said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It's before Jesus did anything, before he preached a message, before he healed anybody, before he went to the cross, he was already loved by the Father. Everything he would do would come from that place of being rooted in the love of the Father. Not trying to earn it, just living out of it, right? So that's how he's lived the first half. The second part, while they're there on the mountain, again, a voice from the clouds says on the mountain, this is my beloved son. This time he says, listen to him. This time it's not only uh, for him, it's for Peter, James, and John. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I want to suggest that that instruction is for us as much as it was for them. If we count ourselves among those who are his followers, who are his apprentices, we should listen to him. The question is, will we listen to him if the cost of discipleship is getting steeper? As we move into Mark, the crowds are going to thin. The crowds that were once surging around Jesus to where he was trying to get away from them, suddenly they're disappearing because Jesus isn't as popular and he's saying things they don't want to hear. Will we follow Jesus? Will we listen? Will we, will we listen when it's no longer so popular to be called by his name? We, it's, it, it's fascinating. We live in a time where America has, has becoming and is becoming a post-Christendom world in which people no longer identify as Christians. It used to be everybody was a Christian if you're American. I mean, it's like 75% of the population self-identified as Christians. doesn't mean they were, but at least I self-identified that way because that's, it's no longer popular. Will we listen to Jesus? Will we listen to him as he sends us out as his representatives in his name into the confusion of the world? That's what we're going to look at today. Jesus' disciples in the middle of a confusing world. Will we allow him to instruct us and correct us? 
Will he allow him to lead us and to send us in the same way that the 12 needed Jesus to shape and correct them? Because even though they were sincerely wanting to follow him, they were sincerely wrong in their expectations. Will we allow him to lead us, to shape us, to correct us, and to send us? Don't forget the send part. Will we follow him in a life that travels through death before reaching resurrection? This was the hard thing for the disciples to stomach. Jesus was going to be, they were going to experience him in resurrected glory. That thing that happened on the mountain, that was a foretaste. Something that, to give them a, an anchor to hold on to when he was on the cross. Right? When they saw him on the cross, they could remember. But, but we also saw who he was. Just something to hold on to. When they, when they themselves were, were, were being, and, and most, 11 of the 12 disciples would suffer a martyr's death. What sustained them? It was the hope that there was resurrection on the other side of death. Church, the American gospel has so often been that if you come to Jesus, your life's going to be great. And it's simply not what Jesus promised. Jesus said things like, this life you will have trials. But take heart. I have overcome. The journey to glorification comes through the valley of death, both for Jesus and for his disciples. Let's pick up in Mark chapter 9. When they came to the disciples, so now they're coming down the mountain. Here's the nine. They've been, they've been waiting for them faithfully at the bottom of the hill. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. I've wondered why they are amazed. Mark never explains that. I suspect he's still radiating glory. To the, I mean, if Moses came down the hill, we're still reflecting glory. I think Moses, Jesus comes down and there's still, wow, there's something very white. And I don't mean, I mean like Purdue white. Jesus and James, Peter, James, and John, they returned to find the other nine disciples in the middle of some sort of uproar. It's a commotion. It's a hullabaloo, which is, I think has to be kind of jarring because they've just had a mountaintop experience. Peter, James, and John, they're coming back and they're just like, man, we're just, they're just like, probably like, oh, that was so good. They're, they're humming the worship songs they sang up on top of the mountain. And they get down and suddenly it's like, what? It's, there's this, like this uproar, this, there's conflict. We're going to see that there's, a, there's an evil spirit that's, that's manifesting there. And at the middle of it, which by the way, is just a picture of the now and the not yet. This is the world we live in. While we wait for Jesus' second coming, we experience both. We experience transcendent moments. Oftentimes in worship together or in times of prayer, we, there's, there's transcendent moments where we just experience God's nearness, his glory, his love, his favor. And then there's moments where we're just hit in the face with still living in a fallen world. That's, that's our experience. But we have that hope. We know who he is. Take heart, I have overcome the world. At the middle of this conflict is a, is a team known as the Arguing Scribes, also a good name for a band. <laughs> right? The Arguing Scribes. What would their musical style be, Jesse? Probably ska. Yeah. <laughs> arguing Scribes. Singing about their combs. All right. Um, but so, so, so you've got the nine and the arguing scribes, and then around them there's a crowd. There's a group of spectators. Included, and included in that spectator, and they're watching this conflict unfold, a tennis match. They're watching this conflict. And Jesus asked them, verse 16, Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? I think this was directed to the nine. What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So this father has come seeking Jesus. He's bringing his son who's being tormented by demons. This father, doesn't, he's, he's not counted among Jesus' followers yet. Okay? What does he call him? He calls him rabbi, teacher. Okay, so he knows that this man's a spiritual man. He's not, he's not 
been persuaded that this is, this is Lord. This is not Jesus Christ, right? And so he's, he's somebody who's spiritually unconvinced. He's, he's a he's seeker, right? And he comes, but he's, he comes because he's desperate, and he brings his son, who, who is, his, his life is being ravaged by a demon. It's important. And, so he's, and the, the manifestation of that in this boy's life is seizures uh, that are very violent. We're going to see in a moment those seizures are not only violent, they're, they're self-harming. That in the, when he's in the throes of one of these seizures, he tries to kill himself. And so there's a lot of self-harm going on. It's important to note that Scripture sometimes does associate seizures with someone being possessed demonically, but not always. There's a place in Matthew chapter four that has this kind of like laundry list of all the things that Jesus did as, as he moved among a crowd and healed people. And there's a summary report there. There's a distinction made between demonic possession and healing of people with epileptic seizures. It's important for us to know that because there's times when Christians, well-meaning Christians have tried to cast a demon out of someone that was not demonically possessed. And, and it did damage to people. I, that's happened here in our midst. I've, I've, I've got friends who left the church because wife got prayed for that she was demonized and it, it was scarring to her. So, so we, there's a discernment involved in this. Sometimes there are. There's a discernment. But the commotion has to do with the fact that Jesus' disciples were not able to free the boy from his demonic oppression. And here's, but here's maybe why the argument's happening. They have done so in the past. If we look back right now, we're in chapter 9. If we look back to chapter 6, Six, chapter 6, verse 7 and 12 through 13 says this, And Jesus called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority. He gave them authority. His authority. He, he put it on them over the unclean spirits. So they went out, they proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. This means that these nine disciples have previously operated in Jesus' authority. They've, they've been his representatives. And th- in the same way, you know, they, the idea with a, an apprentice or a disciple is that they're learning how to do what their master has taught them. They, they, they can act in his authority. Jesus is going to be sending them as his delegates in his name with his authority, which is in line with this father bringing his son to Jesus. And with the father, did you catch this? The father said, um, I brought my son to you, but your disciples couldn't heal him. Did you catch that? Because the expectation was the disciples could act in his authority. So the question is, why couldn't they do it now? If they did it back in chapter 6, that's only three chapters ago, right? Why can't they do it now? I think that's probably some of the source of the arguing. They're arguing with the Jewish scribes who may be uh, accusing them of being fraudulent and fakes in the first place. The scribes didn't believe that they, well, they didn't claim to be able to heal people, and they didn't think other people could heal people either. They, so they, they wrote about healings, they talked about healings, but they didn't actually believe they could still happen. They were the sensationists of the first, of the first century. And so they're arguing with them. I think the disciples are probably feeling criticized that they can't do this thing they've done in the past. I think they're probably turned on each other, like, why aren't you doing it? Get out of the way, let me do it. Do you remember how it goes? You're, supposed to, you're doing it wrong. You don't just say Jesus. You say Jesus in the name of Je- you. Got to you got to stretch it out, man. So I I don't know. Like the, I'm I'm filling in the gaps here, but but they're arguing with the scribes because they can't do this thing that they've done previously. Hmm. So coming back to chapter nine, Jesus has just been brought up to speed on the nature of the commotion. He asked, "What are you arguing with them about?" And they've just filled him in. Let's see his response, verse nineteen. And he answered them, put yourself in the shoes of the nine, the fellowship of the nine who could not deliver this boy. Listen to, listen to how it would be here to have your rabbi, your master, your teacher, your friend say these things. He answered them, oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. I don't want to skip over this. Do you hear the frustration in Jesus? Do you hear the frustration? 
I wonder how they feel about getting this. I mean, it, I don't know how you want to categorize it. I mean, Jesus seems a little petulant. I would imagine they experience as a scolding, a reprimand, a correction, a rebuke. But I find myself asking, why, why is Jesus so bothered? Why is he so bothered about this? And he, let me, I'll give you a couple things. One is, as we get into the second half, there's an urgency within Jesus to prepare his disciples for what awaits him in Jerusalem and what will happen afterwards. And part of this, he knows that he'll be ascending to the Father. He's no longer going to be physically present with him. Again, as we, as we talked about earlier, the, he's going to send the indwelling Holy Spirit to be with them. So they're not orphans. They have God's presence within them and empowering them. And yet they don't seem ready for that. They have to be able to function in his authority and his delegates here on earth. If Jesus' mission, the, the thing that he's going to the cross for, if that's going to continue to expand and extend out into the world, to ripple out into new places, to new people, if that's going to happen, it's, it's on these nine and the other three to do it. <sighs> he went up the mountain for one day. He was physically missing for one day. And what happened? Instead of operating as his delegates with his authority, they're arguing with the religious scribes. And he's bothered by it. If this were a beta test for how the disciples will function without Jesus' physical presence, well, we can understand his irritation. <laughs> Meanwhile, while they're sidelined in arguing with one another, possibly, you know, you know you're doing it wrong or arguing with the scribes. No, we've done it before while they're arguing with the scribes with one another, meanwhile, there's a boy who's suffering. There's a father who's not yet a follower of Jesus who is just coming for hope, for help. And, and they've been marginalized because it's all about this conflict. Verse 21, Jesus asked his, and Jesus asked his father, meaning the boy's father, not Jesus' father. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. That is the most authentic and faith-filled prayer in this whole passage. Out of all this mess and failure of Jesus' disciples comes this shining moment. I believe it's a hope and a prayer for all who would come to follow Jesus because what this, disciple, this father models is coming to Jesus as he is, bringing his faith and his doubts and asking Jesus to meet him there. It's a moment of honesty, of humility, of, of inadequacy, of coming open-handed. It's a recognition that he, and I would suggest like us, I, I know like me for sure, that he is conflicted and fragmented, that he's still in process. Isn't that, but in that place of honest humility, space gets made for Jesus to continue his work in and through us. Let me t I'll tell you what's going to happen. Jesus is going to fully heal the boy. So that's coming. What? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert that's right. But I find it interesting that Jesus, I mean, what did he say? He said, anything, he said, if you believe, or if, what did he say? If, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And he comes back with this. I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm, I, I do believe and I'm conflicted. I have hope and I've got doubts. And Jesus doesn't respond and say, um, why don't you come back when you can conjure up a little more, a little better than that? You're going to have to do better than that. I mean, this is about faith, right? I, I told you, if it, it, it's possible, if you believe, if you have faith and you come back to me with uh, sort of do, I sort of don't, come on. No, it's actually in that place of humility that Jesus responds. I think that model is very helpful for us because it allows us to be an integrated people who are in process. It allows us to tell Jesus 
what's true about us and what we want to be true and what's not yet true. It allows us to, I, to, I think of it sometimes as like a two-sided coin, that there are two sides, but it's an integrated whole, right? I surrender to your will. I find myself praying this sometimes, God, I want your will. And I keep drifting into doing my own thing. Would you help me? Help my independence. God, I, I, I love you and I love other people. And sometimes I'm a real jerk. And I get cold-hearted towards people and I judge people. Would you help me? I love you and I love people, but help me in my unlove. I offer myself to you all that I am and all that I'm not yet. I know I'm still a work in progress. God, I'm asking you for, for this response to my prayer, and I trust you if you do something different. See, it's in that place of, of being able to bring both together that we can have humility before God and just open ourselves to him. This is where our deepest longings become integrated with our current state. Wherever we are, even if that has to do with our sanctification, our transformation to be more like Christ. It's when we can acknowledge to Jesus our own inadequacy and our insufficiency that it opens us to receive his grace. Grace floods in when we come as inadequate people. When we think we can do it, when we're the disciples saying, hey, I've got this, I've done this before. Move out of the way, I got this. See, that sort of self-assurance and self-reliance cut off God's grace. That's what I, I, yeah. When we can acknowledge to Jesus our own inadequacy and our insufficiency, it opens us to receive his grace. Let's watch how Jesus responds to the Father's honest cry for help. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that, the, that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. All the commentators say in the original language that, that he, he raised him. It's the language of resurrection. The demonic spirit doesn't give up easily. He tries one last violent effort to destroy this boy. But Jesus, who brings life from what appears to be dead, simply touches and speaks. And he brings the boy back. This is, this is, I mean, this is a, a foreshadowing of what will happen in Jerusalem when Jesus actually is killed, but then is raised back to life by the Father. It's, it's a foretaste of our own life where at some point, we're going to die. The death rate is hovering right about 100%. We will die. Apart from Jesus coming back or us being, I don't know, whisked away. There's a little bit of precedent for that, but... But why, how can we endure that? Why can we endure that with hope? Because we know there's resurrection life on the other side of it. That's what Jesus promised. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus brings life from what appears to be dead. He, he releases new creation life into this boy. Later that evening, the disciples come in private, <laughs> private to ask Jesus, hey, by the way, why, um, why couldn't we do that? Verse 28, when he had entered his house, the disciples asked him privately, um, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, what does he mean by that? Because surely they were praying. I have to think they were pulling on every formula that they had established because of, you know, back when we got sent out in chapter six, we, we, we said this and it worked. So just say it like that again. Or, or maybe, you know, wave your arms more. Do, do, do this. And I promise you, when there was a crowd watching and, and, and there was this desperate father there, they prayed words of prayer right there. And, and, and actually, when Jesus got up there, he didn't. He just said, leave now and never come back. It was like Gollum. Leave now and never come back. 
And that's all he, so, so when he says this kind can only come out with prayer, he's not talking about the words that get spoken at the moment of encounter. He's actually talking about a lifestyle of prayer that powerful grace emerges from. Follow me into a power-filled life. The power-filled life is not what happens at the moment of encounter. It's the whole life, who you are, and how you've been living and what you've been cultivating that renders you either powerful or powerless in that moment. Jesus is talking about prayer as a lifestyle, a lifestyle of cultivating intimacy with the heavenly father like Jesus did. Mark chapter, Mark chapter one, the first part of this book starts with Jesus. He, he gets baptized. The, the, the spirit descends on him. So he too is living as one empowered by the indwelling spirit. He's living the same way he's, he's going to send his disciples to live. The father speaks, you are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased, so he's going to operate out of that place of, of the Father's love, not trying to earn it, but, but, but rooted in it. And then, and then out of that, he actually does begin bringing hope to the world. He's healing people. And on one night after he had a particularly long day of the whole spectrum, casting out demons, healing the sick, crowds coming, he had this really, it was the, it was the first public launching of his ministry. It's all over. This is Mark chapter 1. It's all over. He sneaks away in the middle of the night to a, a desolate place. And the desolate place was the place of intimacy with his father where he could get away and just re, reset. Father, I need to know that, that I'm loved by you. And my love isn't from the adoring crowds. That's going to come and go. The crowds are fickle. I need to stay in that place of knowing that I'm loved by you. I don't know, we don't know what all Jesus did, but we, we know that was the pattern of his life he would escape to places to pray. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he's taught his disciples how to do this. At this point in, in the story, he's already given them the Lord's prayer. They said, how do, you, how do you pray? When you go away like that, like, would you teach us what it is you do? And so he said, okay, here. And he gave him a prayer that when you read that prayer and pray that prayer, it's not designed to be prayed on special solemn occasions. It's a daily prayer. It's, it's a framework to pray into not just as a script, but it's actually the Lord's Prayer is a framework to pray through every day. And part of it's this reminder that, that we need daily bread. The time was coming when Jesus would no longer be physically present with them. They needed to begin seeking their own daily bread as he taught them. The time is coming when they will need to take personal ownership for cultivating that place of surrender that is also the place of obedience. It's the place of love. It's the place of authority. It's a place of effectiveness. This is growing up as a follower of Jesus to spend more time face down. Verse 30. They went on from there and they passed through Galilee. This is the end of, this is the, end of the story. Last, last section. They went on from there. They passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know. This has been the place where he did most of his public ministry so far. He didn't want anybody to know anymore because he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. Section closes with Jesus. His, this is now his second prediction of what will happen. He's speaking plainly, no longer in parables. He's speaking plainly things that they do not want to hear. But intertwined in the message that they don't want to hear is the promise that will sustain them. It won't always be like this. Resurrection comes through death. His resurrection is a foretaste for theirs. So, follow me into powerful prayer. A couple application points. First of all, Jesus desires his followers to bring his compassion and his healing to a tumultuous, argumentative world. Jesus desires his followers, his apprentices, to bring his compassion and his healing to a tumultuous, argumentative world. The question is, are we sidelined and ineffective as his followers because we're caught up in the same arguments and the same chaos while a hurting world is looking for Jesus? And to the degree that that's true, I think that bothers Jesus. I got a text this week from a, a Christian brother who's a, a doctor here in our valley. 
And he's just, and there's all kinds of, all kinds of ways this can manifest. This is just what it's looked like in his life to be, to, to, to witness Christians that are caught up in the arguments and the tumult and instead of rising above it with compassion and with mercy. This is what he said. I'm just going to read a few excerpts. He said, my faith has been tested more than ever in the past year, even more now. I had eight people die this week and I've probably lost 40 patients. Some old, some not. This week I lost a 25-year-old, a 34-year-old, and a 37-year-old while his two young children stood at his bedside. Many others that live will go on weak and broken for the rest of their lives. I can't fix this. I am leaning on God. I'm praying for and even praying with those patients and families that ask. My faith isn't challenged by death and carnage. It's been challenged by the ugliness of Christians and how they behave towards me and towards the nurses when their loved ones die. I've been called the devil's hand. I've been told it's my fault that people are sick or have died. I've been called and accused of all manner of things by Christians, not coping, with the death, not coping well with the death of their loved ones. My staff has endured violence. All the while, we hold vigil 24 hours a day at these patients' bedsides. And when one dies and we console that family, we're only then interrupted to do it again in the room down the hall. And we take on, we carry all that emotion and weight. Please, as a shepherd of the flock, remind people that death comes to us all, that Christ died too, but rose removing sin, and that death can be endured for salvation has been won. Please remind the flock that even in their times of deepest grief, they are still vessels of Christ. And how they behave, how they react is seen by those on the other end. I've not met a healthcare worker yet, Christian or not, that does not care and love those patients they care for. Remind them of that. We are not the enemy, though you wouldn't know that if you came to the hospital. There's all kinds of layers and context to that. But I think the big picture is how are we representing Christ as his delegates in the world? Are we caught up in the confusion, the chaos, the, the arguments? Or are we rising above it and moving in compassion and authority of God and mercy and rooted in the fact that this is not all there is? There's more than this. Our hope is not in this world. And we've actually been told that we, along with everyone else, will face trials and tribulations in this world. Our hope isn't here. If that's if that, what I just read, if that's not what Jesus wants of us, how do we do better in this moment when the heat's been turned up? How do we do better when the religious community is arguing? When being named by as followers of Jesus costs more than ever before? When there's a hurting world groaning for Jesus' compassion and for resurrection life? I would suggest that more than ever before we must follow Jesus into a lifestyle of prayer, frequently meeting him in the place and the practice of prayer for daily bread. Now, this is not a one-size-fits-all. For what it looks like for me to get daily bread in this season of my life may look very different than what it looks like for you to find daily bread in your season of life. There's seasons, there's temperaments, there's all kinds of issues, but the fact that we need it is becoming ever true. Here's my experience. I told a friend recently, I shared this with our staff team as well, I'm weary I am, I'm, I'm really weary. The last two years have taken its toll on me. And I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. I don't wake up and think, oh boy, I get to go to work. I, I love what I do. I don't wake up excited about what it looks like to try and lead in a church right now. And that's how I wake up pretty much every day. And... Pastor Jesse put it, had it on his heart this year to, to, back at the beginning of this year, to start a time of worship and prayer. Every day the office is open, so that's Sunday through Thursday. The office is closed Friday and Saturday. It's at 9 o'clock. It's a time of corporate worship and prayer. I'm an introvert, and so typically my prayer life has been more private. My prayer life has happened more in a contemplative space, my own, you know, my own rhythms. But I really felt like God, like, 
told me, like, when you're able, you, you be there. And here's what I found. When I go to that time of worship and prayer, God gives me daily bread for that day, and I don't leave there in the same place with the same weariness. God gives me daily bread for that day. He lifts my spirit. He gives me abundance. He gives me joy. And then the next day I have to come and do it again because I wake up in the same weariness. And so I found it that for me in this season, that place of corporate worship has been a place where I get manna. Some days, I, I, some days the, the songs are exactly what I need to sing. Some days I, I don't sing the songs. I let other people worship for me and I spend time in prayer. Maybe a line from one of the songs just triggers me to be honest with God and I, I talk to him about where I am and where I want to be. I talk to him about the state of my heart, the, the judgment that's in my heart, and that I don't want to be there or operate from there. It just gives me a place to be honest. And what I'm experiencing is that God is, I'm experiencing how much I need daily bread more than ever I've ever known. It's always been true. I've always needed daily bread. Part of growing up is learning to actually lean into it. I think when the disciples, when they went out the first time in Mark 6, I think they borrowed on Jesus' intimacy. He gave them his authority and the intimacy he had cultivated with the Father. They could move in power. As they grew up, as they matured, they were going to have to learn how to find daily bread themselves. I want to invite you to our worship and prayer room just because it's a place of life for me. If you can't make it, that's no condemnation. It's at nine o'clock. It's at nine o'clock in the chapel, again, Sunday through Thursday. Um, we worship, we pray. It's not the same every day, but it's just a gathering. Um, Pastor Jesse is going to start live streaming. We, we, we had live streamed some, some days and we, we, we drifted away from that. In light of this, in light of trying to make it more available and accessible, like if, if your schedule doesn't permit, we're going to start live streaming that. So you'll find it on our socials. Um, it'll be both that you, you can participate live or you can stream it later uh, if, you are, if nine o'clock doesn't work for you, which we, we recognize that doesn't work for, for many people in terms of vocations. But um, we're going to just post it out there and it's a place that you can um, find daily bread. It may not be the thing that you need in this season though. It may be that you need to circle back to, to a, a well that God has given you previously, a deep well where you experience living water. You may know what that is. If you don't know what sort of rhythms are a place of receiving daily bread, maybe ask a fellow believer, a brother or sister in Christ, who you recognize is living with a non-anxious presence in a very anxious world. I bet you, I bet you, they have a, a practice of private prayer. That's what helps them to be effective. That's, why, that's, that's the only way to sustain this. It doesn't matter what vocation you're in. You, you may not be a pastor. You may be experiencing the same weariness I am. This is what the church needs right now. So what happens in the place of prayer? I'll close with three quick things. One is that disciples are formed to be more like Jesus. It's actually in the place of prayer where we can, again, it's we, can, we can come as we are and as we're not yet and just be completely transparent and say, here am I. You know, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See whatever in me is, is distorting your image. See whatever in me is blocking our intimacy. And would you lay your finger on that? And would you speak resurrection life into me? And, that, and in that place, we get formed to be more like Christ. I long to be Christ's image in this world. I can't just do it on my own strength. I can't just white knuckle it. I place myself before him. He can transform me. He can transform us. Secondly, disciples can root down into God's sufficiency rather than trying to operate out of self-sufficiency. I love the prayer model of the Father because it's, it's a confession that opened him up to doing what, for God to do what only he can do. To quote Pastor John Novison, somebody sent me a great article. My sister-in-law sent me a great article yesterday. And in it, there was this quote from John Novison. He said, the feel of faith is not strength. The feel of, of faith is not strength. It is dependent weakness. That's what the Father did. That's why Je and that's why Jesus didn't rebuke him and send him away. How dare you come at me with that sort of half-hearted faith? No, that was actually the prayer of faith because it, it acknowledged that, that he didn't have it all. The feel of faith is not strength, but dependent, confessed weakness. The Father's prayer of humility and deep and dependent weakness opened to the heavens, while the disciples' self-sufficient attempts to do God's work did not. 
And lastly, in the place of prayer, disciples are empowered to move like Jesus, empowered to go out. Jesus cultivated this in his life. We see that in his rhythms throughout Mark. That's why his prayers were always answered. Jesus was always asking, speaking, and doing whatever the Father was doing. And because he was in that place, all of his prayers were answered. Leave now and never come back. Powerful prayer. That's what the Father was doing. We often presume to know what the Father's heart is, and we, and we blurt out our own prayers without first stopping to listen, to wait, and discern. So I'll close with this application question. I think this is an application question that is both personal and corporate. It's one I'm, I'm asking myself. God, God um, convicted me to ask this question of, of, my own, of my own heart and my own life this week. I would encourage you to do the same, but I think it's also a question for us as, as a, a body of believers, as one room in his household. The question is this, who is Jesus wanting to extend his mercy and compassion to? Where is he wanting to seek his kingdom to extend and expand that we're overlooking because we're not rooted in a life of prayer, but are instead distracted by arguing? I think Jesus came back and he saw that suffering boy saw the father's desperation and he looks at his disciples and they're just, they're just arguing with the scribes and he's like, you guys, what a picture of our world. Our picture, our world is confusing, disorienting, argumentative and we're supposed to bring God's compassionate mercy to it. I'd suggest we spend a little less time on the internet and more time on our knees. That's what I'd suggest. Not so much time off the internet that we are clueless about what's going on. Because we do need to know what's going on in the world. But there should be some balance there. Would you stand with me? I'm just going to close in a corporate prayer. I just want to leave that question lingering. Ask Jesus to shape our hearts and open our eyes to see what he would see. If you're joining at home from the live stream, I just encourage you to put yourself in a posture of prayer. For me, the, the physical posture of prayer that I find most helpful to what's going on in my soul is to simply open myself because it, it says, I, here I am. You know, you see me as I am. And I want, I want to, to, to yield to you and receive from you. Lord Jesus, um, Thank you, first of all, for the promise of resurrection life, that there is more than this life, that you are making all things new, and we've seen foretastes of it. We've seen foretastes in in your resurrection. We've seen foretastes in in you bringing healing and, and miraculous interventions here in our world, even right here in our congregation, and we know that, that it's not till you return that all things are made new. Would you sustain us? Would you help us to to be rooted in the Father's love? Lord, to daily come to that place of being re-rooted, re-grounded in a love that is unearned. A love that wasn't wasn't won because of who we are or what we, we did, but was freely given. That you came seeking us while we were yet your enemies. God, I pray for every follower of Jesus that we would would find that place, that practice, that place of, of a lifestyle of prayer through which we can be formed by you, filled with you, sent by you, led by you, changed by you, shaped by you, filled with you. Lord, would you teach us to join this Father in in just prayers of honesty where we can declare to you the longing, the the deepest longings of our soul and also where we're not yet there. In that place, Lord, would you send us? Would you send us to a hurting world that is full of confusion and arguments and, and pain? Would you send us to bring healing, not to just add to the noise? 
we offer ourselves to you. Lord, I especially pray for those who, who don't know what that rhythm would look like for them right now. I pray that you would, would lead them, that you would lead them in conversations, to people to ask, people to, to talk with. But Lord, would you root us for your glory, for our joy, for the sake of others. Amen. Uh, well, this is the time when I say, go make the invisible God visible. And if you're on campus, there's a lot going on. Again, there's a meet and greet. There's a uh, financial planning meeting, which is fantastic. Um, my wife and I used that resource, and it was very helpful for us. And there's also the bookstore sale. So go do those things if you're on campus, if one of those fits you. And then go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.